Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And if you have any questions or comments, please send them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That's kbmakel at aol.com. Or leave them in the comments section of Podbean and I'll, I'll get to them. Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, kind of a question I was asked is why do I think Donald Trump will be the nominee instead of Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis who are like the last three standing you know that's that's the last three it's because I think enough people doubt the integrity of the 2020 election and saying so has gotten me kicked off of YouTube which I could care less about because frankly YouTube uh, it's it's garbage. I mean, every gun content creator on YouTube is scared of their own shadow, and, and they've all been demonetized, and, and all this. Wah, wah, wah. Well, you know, when you let these tech people have this absolute authority over what's going to be on the internet and what's going to be on these channels, then that's, that's what you're going to get. And I don't think anybody listens to podcasts on YouTube anyway. If they do, well they'll just have to find me somewhere else but um, the integrity of the 2020 election was called into question and reasonable people like me who get called election deniers and everything else by the you know bedwetting communist scum uh, that that was totally invested in getting rid of Donald Trump and getting you know anyone else and they got a senile old man put in instead uh, all I really wanted was I wanted an investigation uncover anything that's un, that's there I mean an honest investigation and if there were irregularities especially if they were serious enough to have changed the outcome of the election um, then I want safeguards put into place so it doesn't happen again. That is not unreasonable. Now, given that our idiotic Congress, especially under Nancy Pelosi, is investigating things like UFOs and all this other freaking nonsense that they do, I would think that the election would be a much higher priority than probably 95% of the other, quote, business, quote, unquote, that um, that Congress does. I mean, outside of the budget, I think that something like this would be right up there. So, anyway, uh, this is why people are supporting Donald Trump. They are suspicious that he was cheated in the last election, and they also realize that his track record is he either does or gives it the best try possible to do what he says he's going to do. And when you look at the border mess, you look at our foreign policy messes, I mean, it's just everywhere. Uh, you see, the, the government is, is in an absolute mess. It's in an absolute state of chaos. There's no, you know, this, I mean, think of the United States in like, even like 1980. Or 1985, 1990, 1991, even after you know after the uh, 
September 11th attacks. All of those things, we were basically very strong, very united. It was definite. We understood what everything was going to happen. People understood where the United States stood on issues. Now we just, it's crazy. Um, it's absolutely crazy. So that's why people want Donald Trump. That's why people are supporting him in what appears to be over 50% of the uh, early caucuses and, and probably the primaries. That's, that is amazing. Those are amazing numbers, by the way. Uh, so enough of politics. You know, it, it's, it's so funny how things can come around and bite people in the backside. And this president of Harvard is one of them. This dullard, this liar, plagiarist, radical, who they put in there as a DEI hire, they, they put her in there because she looked right for what they wanted for the job. Rather, you know, why wasn't Condoleezza Rice... Why wasn't she considered? Huh, maybe it was her politics. She would have been a much more brilliant choice, in my opinion. But anyway, um, they put this person in. And the, the worst part of it is, uh, she is not only not qualified to be the president of Harvard, she wouldn't even be a student with the kind of plagiarism she did. You know, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable that this was allowed to happen. And it was the big money behind the schools you know a lot of very big liberals give money to these colleges which is why they're so liberal but then they never counted on creating these Frankensteins who are gonna yell Palestine will be free from the river to the sea and for the big liberal Jewish donors I bet they were having fits over this and it's amazing to me it shows you not just the deep state type of stuff, but how things really work. This woman went to Congress, made a complete ass out of herself. A complete, you know, she looked like a complete simpleton. All three of them, the three of them that went up there, two of them are now out of jobs because they're such morons. But she went up there and then literally, when it, when it, obviously she wasn't going to resign over that, so then... They had the goods on her. They knew she had plagiarized. They knew it. They had to have known it ahead of time for that thing to develop so quickly and be such a, uh, a catalyst for her to, to resign. It's absolutely scary. It's absolutely unbelievable um, that, you know, these kind of power brokers are behind the scenes. But this time the power brokers got bitten in the backside by what they what they put into place and if you're a wealthy Jewish donor I don't think you really like the place you just wrote big checks to for the last however many years having all their their sweet little students run around screaming you know river to the sea <laughs> they, they, they weren't digging that people people justifying that horrific and horrible attack that happened in October. I mean, that, you know, it just, you know, that that shows you, uh, you know, Israel, I think they may have even just kind of let their guard down a little bit. They are, 
they are people who you know used to be very well armed and kind of vigilant and I think they they got a little complacent and holy man did they pay a price did they pay a price and it's uh, it's it's a long way from over but of course our government is now waffling and saying well you know haven't you done enough can't you stop you know at least Israel is acting the way the United States used to act when we were confronted by that kind of evil so it's it's pretty uh, pretty amazing we'll see how this all develops uh, the next one last last podcast I was talking about the Freedom Riders and uh, I'm just wondering what excuse these guys are going to use now. For for those of you who know, I call a freedom rider. They enjoy their gun freedom. And I mean, they have scads of guns and scads of reloading equipment and all this high-end stuff. But they won't cough up the 35 or 40 bucks to join the NRA. Because they hated Wayne LaPierre and because... And, and I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm not defending... All the spending, I, I don't, I've heard one thing, heard another. I'm sure it's going to be kind of a mess. Yeah, they did kind of spoil the guy. They bought him clothes. They had makeup, they had a glam squad makeup artists for his wife. Um, you know, that's, that's just kind of it. Um, and there ne- needs to be some reforms. I think the NRA board needs to kind of come come down in size and kind of get the celebrities off it you know it's nice having former NBA players on it I mean they want to show this it, it's from being an effective board which it isn't it's become this showcase of these are the kind of people who support gun rights and that's not a bad thing that's not a bad thing um, because the that's been a reaction to the media, the way the media portrays the NRA. You know, we talk about who represents gun owners. Um, I have talked to some, they used to have the regional representatives for the NRA, and they would come around to gun clubs and, and kind of give a talk uh, at the meetings and things. And one guy, this was, this was after the, uh, this is when the 94 assault weapons ban was happening. God, that's 30 years ago now. So it shows you how long ago it was. Whether they still got these regional guys around, I don't know. But um, Anyway, he was saying that, hey, every time we hold a counter-demonstration or a demonstration, you know, people show up uh, for gun rights and everything, he goes, you can have, if you have ten guys there, ten people there, and nine of them are dressed in business suits and they're doctors, lawyers, professionals... You know, just just people who do that, and then you have the one guy who shows up in the Elmer Fudd cap, and the uh, the checkered shirt, and not that he's a bad guy, but that's the guy that the media will swarm as the representative, and they will ignore everybody else. They ignore the broad spectrum of people who support the NRA, and they focus in on, hey, it's this white redneck you know, works a low blue-collar job, you know, that kind of thing. Probably served in the military, you know. I mean, you know, all of this, they, they, they want to put, treat you like, like you're all in a box. I mean, we know that's not true. So 
the board has reflected that spectrum really well. The problem is the board is too big to do anything. And so a lot of the power just went to the executive offices and the people who are, you know, the, the president of the NRA going back to like Charlton Heston, who, you know, he was our Moses man. He, he basically, we have gun rights today because of the NRA and because of Charlton Heston specifically. Um, he was a guy who could, who could really speak, really do it. But after him, they all became just a figurehead and the power all went into Wayne LaPierre's office and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we have to, we have to correct that. We have to do some reforms and the way you do that is, hey, you become a participating member. I mean, I, and, and the Freedom Riders, you know, guys, I, I sit there and I'll watch people with thousands of dollars, and I'm not exaggerating, tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment to, complaining about the NRA and the mismanagement. It's like, okay, okay what are they going to do? Mismanage your $40? You know, that barely pays for the magazine. You know, come on. And the American Rifleman magazine is a pretty good magazine, actually. It's a lot better than it used to be. It used to be kind of, you It was great. When my father was, you know, an NRA member, you know, when I was just a small child, The it was the magazine. It was great. Then when it got all the competition in the 70s and 80s and a bit even into the 90s, wasn't really very good. You just sort of, you know, kind of look at it, kind of roll your eyes. But over the last, say, 15 years, it is a very good magazine, and it covers a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. It's actually a good magazine. But the Freedom Riders won't even say, "Yeah, I'm getting the magazine. I get the magazine once a month. Yeah, that's worth." You know, go buy go buy a gun magazine. And see what they cost. They're like what six, seven bucks if you bought one every every month. You're spending almost twice of what an NRA membership costs you, so you know they. But they won't even do that. It's it becomes this matter of principle, and the principle is most of them. And I'm not going to say all. I'm I'm not making that broad brush, but most of them, the ones I've run across, are cheap. They are cheap, and they're letting everybody else fight the fight for them while they enjoy the freedom. And and you know I'll be honest with you. I'm pragmatic enough. Okay, fine. You know, if they got to put Wayne Lapierre in some nice clothes so that he can get in the get in the front door to talk to people, fine. I'd rather have that and gun rights than have none of that and have my gun rights gone because nobody takes the NRA seriously. And I'm not saying there aren't good organ other organizations, but you know, when you run into a freedom rider the question to really try to pry out of them is, well, what other gun organizations do you belong to? And if they answer truthfully, which I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the ranch on. If you know, if you know what I'm talking about, I wouldn't bet the ranch that they're going to answer you truthfully. But if they do, you'll find it's none. That's what you'll find. That's what I found. You know. So anyway. Uh, that's the whole thing. All right. 
Oh, a friend of the podcast has sent sent me a uh, Wall Street Journal article, um, their opinion article, which is really very liberal. Uh, they were just celebrating Larry Vickers' demise, you know, the guy who's the big gun content creator, you know, is illegal and a felon and now all this other stuff. Um, you know, that's kind of to be expected. I always, I, I'm really conflicted with this. Do I feel sorry for Larry Vickers? On some level, I kind of do. On other levels, I say, hey man, you you are really stretching the blanket on all this. And, um, you know, it's like you're dancing on the edge of a cliff. Uh, I mean, you're just dancing on the edge of a cliff. So I, I, I don't know. I personally believe, where I have a lot of sympathy with him is, I personally believe the Federal Firearms Act of 1934 is unconstitutional. I personally believe that. No one can convince me otherwise. You know, they can get Alan Dershowitz and everybody else, and I'm not taking their answers because I've read the Constitution, and I know what the Federal Firearms Act of 1934 is. I've read that, too. It's unconstitutional. Just that simple. So, um, was he acting in concert? Was he exercising his rights in concert with the U.S. Constitution? Yes. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, um, the law is not necessarily justice, and justice is not necessarily the law. So, unfortunately, we have all these encumbrances which com- which are preventing us and infringing us from exercising our constitutional rights. That's just the reality. That's just a reality. So you can you can say all this other stuff, but at the end of the day you may have to face it in a court which is not going to recognize that argument. So um, and that's just the reality that we have to accept. Would, would I love for my semi-automatic Thompson to be fully automatic? Yes, I would. Do I think it should be? Yes, I would. Do I realize what the consequences would be if I was able to, and I don't actually even think it's possible, but if I was able to illegally convert it, would I be, I would be constitutional, but face it, uh, I don't want to, there's no way that I want to face those kind of penalties. So hey, guess what? I have what I have, and that's that just that's just the reality. That's just the pragmatic reality of of where we are. So that's the that's the saga of all the stuff. Yeah, we've been going 20 minutes already. Oh, let's see. Our friend of the podcast has purchased a 1911 style pistol, the uh, Springfield Mill Spec. He reports that it shoots uh, very excellently, which uh, is very true. Um, I will tell you that I have some experience with that pistol. And uh, that experience was when we were getting ready to deploy to Iraq, uh, there were some military folks, of which I was one, who came to me and said, hey, I'm really not all that confident with a pistol. I'm going to be issued an M9. And... uh, you know, can you take me out and give me some pointers? So we went down to the local rental place. And uh, 
you know, I would we would rent all their M9 style pistols, and I let the other people shoot those, and I would shoot a uh, whatever was left, and you know, to my to my great surprise and delight, um, every time we did this, and we did this several times, uh, the Springfield mil spec was was there. Uh, because you know the ammunition was more expensive, which I was happily to, happy to pay for, and this is, was a rental gun. This wasn't you know just something out of the showcase. This was a rental gun. Um, that gun was so good and so accurate, shot to point of aim, very accurate, excellent trigger pull, you know combat trigger pull, not a target trigger pull. Um, you know if I could have purchased that pistol and taken it with me, I would have done so. Uh, the regulations and everything else are made that extremely, you know, not going to ever happen. But I was very impressed with that pistol, and I really liked it. Uh, that's that's one of those unsung heroes. You don't hear much about it anymore, but it's a very, very good gun. And when you really look at the price, it, it's not that much more than some of the other, you know, kind of 1911A1 clone choices out there. So I think I would, uh, um, I, if you're considering one, I think that uh, a 1911 style pistol with, you know, fixed sights, a good duty, good shooting pistol, that's a great one to, uh, to consider. And that brings me to the last subject before we get into the questions and answers. And that is, you know, how many times if you shoot vintage guns and you shoot lead bullets, you get the advice of slug the bore. Hey, just go ahead and slug the bore. Uh, slugging the bore is not as simple as, as the people who give that advice want you to think. Um, I've slugged a few bores in my time, and uh, I've really, I have to say that, you know... I've never really had this big aha moment with it. In fact, when I've done it, the bores have always slugged out to exactly what they were supposed to. And this is on old guns, too. You don't really do this with new guns, obviously. You do it with older guns, and it's just always one of those things of, oh, you gotta got to do that. Um, my routine that I go with, if I have a vintage gun, I basically procure ammunition or in most cases load ammunition for it with what the bullet should be you know if it's 50 70 I go with a 515 bullet I just that's what I use if it's a uh, 45 70 and again these are lead bullets I go with a 459 I have never really been let down by any of that and when I've slugged the bores, they've, they've come out right. So I use those bullets. Um, I use those bullets, and I've gotten great results. I mean, uh, for the first time. Out of curiosity, I have slugged the bores, and I found that, you know, for the most, I, I can't think of a single one that I've slugged that came way out of spec. Now, conceivably, they're out there, but if you read on the internet and read on the firearms forums, it, it happens all the time. I've done this, and they said it's this, it's that. Um, I don't know that they're measuring it correctly because there is 
a real specific science to doing it and you want to of course measure groove diameter not land diameter um, and I'm just not that sure that in most cases that you really gain anything by slugging the bore now what I'm saying is heresy okay and it, the, the I would be branded as a heretic and run out of town with pitchforks and torches um, by the cast bullet people <laughs> the people who really um, and I'm a cast bullet guy myself I love cast bullets but they would be running out of town and, and here are the kind of guns I've done I did two Webley revolvers and they both came out at at basically 454 and um, I realized that you know I could have easily made a thousandth of an inch mistake so you know by shooting a 455 or 456 bullet in it I'm, I'm doing fine I did a Martini Henry it came out at uh, 458 and my Springfield trapdoors have come out at 458 I mean I, I, I just don't know what to say other than wow they're, <laughs> they're, they're actually pretty good um, slugging a bore on a firearm that's made uh, in the last 150 years you're really looking for an oversized bore the, um, the the cast bullet people would probably tell you that you're when you when you um, slug a bore you're probably going to come up with a result according to their wisdom where it's going to be a little bit larger than standard because of wear on the barrel or maybe manufacturing differences and therefore you need a slightly larger cast bullet which is which can be maddening because you can't always find a 460 mold if your slugged bore comes out to 459 and you know it's what I'm saying is the inaccuracy in some of our measuring tools you know our calipers our technique and a few other things um, you really need to be careful now the one rifle I have where I shoot a larger than um, the normal bullet is a 3220 uh, Winchester 73 that was made in 1889 and for some reason that likes 314 bullets and not the 312 that that um, usually come up with so you know there there can be a case where you find that now I think that was just manufacturing difference I don't think there's two thousandths of an inch wear in that that made the groove diameter deeper so you know understand that slugging the bore may or may not be the uh, um, the panacea that it's it's given you try the standard bullets first and then if you have accuracy problems then you can track down the accuracy and it may be your bore is a little oversized but I would I'd be willing to bet that uh, really not as many of them as as uh, we'd like to think actually are another another issue is uh, cylinder throats and revolvers a lot of revolver shooters want their cylinder throats to be trued and open and, and, and essentially opened up to the same uh, measurement as their now that is a um, that is something that you know there's a lot of controversy about that I've known guys who said I will never have that done again it was a waste of money the gun didn't shoot any better 
and it and it shoots just fine so you know why do that I actually tested it on the aforementioned Webley revolvers and the Webley revolvers were supposedly and again this comes from relatively credible sources that they had very tight uh, cylinder throats because they wanted the powder to burn behind it so they squeezed down the bullet and because it was a soft lead bullet it would then pass undersized into the barrel and the pressure from all the burned powder uh, because it was delayed a few microseconds would cause the bullet to the base of the bullet to expand grip the rifling and shoot accurately I found this was not the case that the cylinder throats in two Webley revolvers um, basically match the groove diameter so you know and these had not been messed with the, the only thing that had ever been done to these was they were um, they were modified so they would take 45 ACP which is always a mistake in a Webley revolver but most of the ones you run across at least here in the states are that way so anyway uh, that's that's kind of an ancillary thing to slugging the bore is um, don't go down the rabbit holes because they will put them out there and make you feel like if you don't do this or you don't believe this that you're you're doomed to mediocrity and that's just simply not the case all right we're halfway through and we are gonna start questions and answers okay our first question comes from listener Michael and I'm not gonna give his last name but he asked a very very a multi-part question that draws out a lot of information and uh, I really like it it's uh, most questions are kind of black and white but this this actually goes on the surface and then goes deeper so uh, you are an infantryman in World War two you are in the European theater you are allowed to have a main gun and a handgun which firearm would you choose M1 Garand M1 Carbine Thompson grease gun BAR and which handgun 1911 1917 or Browning high power well I, I can tell you that um, if I the, if I have no prior knowledge I'm I'm 19 years old you're gonna get stuck with what your issue you know so they're gonna issue you an M1 rifle and if you carry a handgun it's gonna be a 1911 and if they're short for some reason or some anomaly comes up you might get a 1917 that's the easy answer the the harder and draw out answer is kind of knowing what combat in the European theater would be like what would you choose and I look at those and I say well I, I unless I have another job like radioman or mortarman or something else uh, I don't really want an M1 carbine I, I they're nice they have reasonably good capacity um, but I, I don't think I would really choose that as a primary weapon the the other choices are Garand Thompson grease gun BAR BAR again that's something you're assigned um, I would not choose I would not volunteer for that um, because the the BAR I find personally and I'm, I'm not a big guy I'm five foot nine um, you know I was weightlifter so I was kind of muscular but I, I never found the BAR to be particularly comfortable or a a gun that I, I really I always felt awkward with it so I would not choose a BAR now if the BAR 
was in the configuration of a Colt Monitor machine rifle, which was a shortened BAR with a flash suppressor and everything on it, then, I'd, then I might go for it. Uh, that's heresy, but the, uh, the BAR was this automatic rifle slash light, light machine gun. Um, it, it's not what I would choose as a primary weapon. The Garand, I, I like, but knowing the kind of combat in the European theater, I want capacity and close range stopping power, in which case I would uh, say that the choice between the Thompson and the Grease Gun doesn't matter. They both 45 caliber, 30 shot magazines. They look very different and operate very differently. Um, my preference would probably be, and I've shot both, uh, my preference would probably be the Thompson. Just for no other reason than that's my preference. So I would probably go with a Thompson. I would probably do that because I can carry lots of 30 round magazines that are fully loaded up. So that would be my long arm choice. My handgun choice would be hands down 1911. Um, and I'm a Browning high power aficionado. I like them. Uh, that's one of the things that friend of the podcast and I always we, we always discuss and, and we mutually admire the Browning high power but if I'm but if I'm in that situation I and I carried a nine millimeter a couple different places so um, you know I have no problem really with a nine millimeter but I would prefer a 45 for close range defense of my person maybe even at contact distance I would prefer to have a 45 automatic. Uh, capacity isn't that important. Stopping power and all the other good things that come with the 1911R. So that's that's where I would be with those. The next part of the question is: uh, You are a paratrooper in the European theater. Which of the above guns and handguns would you choose? Uh, again, I would probably go. I would probably go with the same choices because of the close range combat and also um, I can carry a lot of, of magazines that are loaded. Now it's going to be heavy and going to hit the ground like a ton of bricks but that's okay. Uh, the next choice would be the M1 rifle because even General Gavin, the uh, commanding general of the 82nd in the uh, latter stages of the war, 82nd Airborne Division. Um, he, he, as a general officer, carried an M1 rifle. And he discouraged the use of the carbine simply because it, you know, troops needed firepower. They needed powerful weapons. And he felt the M1 rifle delivered that above a lot of other things. So I would, I would say it's a real toss-up, but I would probably go with a, uh, um, I'd probably go with a Thompson just for fighting in the in the forests in the villages and now I, I say this my uncle was actually in the 82nd and jumped into Normandy and uh, he had an <laughs> he had an M1 carbine I don't I never asked him if it was the folding stock version or the regular version that the, the airborne troops used both but he was uh, he was not really pleased with it and when it ran out of ammunition and he didn't have any more he wound up using a uh, captured uh, German gun, which was, which was pretty uh, an MP40, which was pretty interesting. So, uh, anyway, um, I would probably go with uh, I would probably go with the Thompson 
and if they forced me to use the M1, I wouldn't complain about that. Third part of the question. You are an infantryman in the Pacific Theater. Which of the above guns would you choose? Um, that is harder because I've never been a Pacific guy. So I've never been to like the Iwo Jima. I've been all over Europe, but I've never been on any of those Pacific islands. So I would say um, I would probably go with I'm going to I'm going to say an M1 rifle first and then I'm going to go with the Thompson. So an M1 Thompson and again 1911. Um, and the reason the reason I say 1911 is, you know, it, it, it has a little more than the revolver. I, I like the 1917 revolver. Uh, I like the Smith better than the Colt, but um, you know they're good. They're really good guns. If I was not in frontline combat and some and I would, I would a 1917 revolver would be just fine. Uh, I would not use the Browning High Power. Nothing against it, other than it's a different caliber than what I'm already carrying. If I'm if I have a Thompson, I have to carry a 45 caliber pistol just to keep. That way I can move ammo back and forth in between the two. If I have a 9mm pistol, obviously I can't do that. Um, so I would, if I were in the British Airborne and they gave me a Sten, yes, I would want a Browning High Power over a 1911 because of that ammo interchangeability. So those are three questions. Again, you know, it's, it's easier to look back and say... Knowing what I know about the combat in those areas, I would I would take I would select this. But the truth of the matter is, when you don't know, like you know, you don't know on Pacific Islands, is the enemy going to be in bunkers, two hundred yards away? In which case, a Thompson isn't going to help you very much. Or are they going to be in pillboxes and machine gun nests and things? And you're going to be engaging them at 30 yards or less, or you might have, you might have a bunch of guys doing kind of a bonsai charge. You know, which which weapon do you really want in a bonsai charge? And the answer is, well, you want to. Either of those weapons will work, but you need to be in and amongst your buddies so that you can put out some withering fire, not just from yourself, but from them too. So very very interesting. Um, I find the airborne question the most intriguing because those guys were dropped everywhere um you know they, they they did a terrible job in normandy getting the guys at the right place at the right time at the right drop zone and so you could you could wind up with three or four guys operating very independently for a long period of time in which case that question really draws out um, what do you really want to have? And um, yeah, I I would I would want the Thompson in that situation, and I'd want a lot of ammo. Um, I I'm just not that big. I've never been that huge on the M1 carbine because it was designed to replace the pistol for people who were doing something else. Now I realize a lot of NCOs, officers, people who had other things i'm sure radio radio guys radio operators 
you know, if you have something else, the carbine is an excellent weapon. Uh, it's an excellent weapon uh, for for that. But I really think that uh, I would want one of the others. And in those days, the carbine had 15-round magazines. Not bad. Certainly, certainly a good capacity. But it was not the 30-round magazines that we're all used to today. Uh, those didn't come out until later at the maybe at the very end of the war and I doubt if any got to Europe I think maybe a few got to the Pacific but the um, I would I would say that the uh, to me the carbine would not be my first choice now again if I'm behind the lines and there's a possibility there could be a breakthrough I need to be armed I need if somebody gave me an M1 carbine and a, uh, a 1917 revolver I'd be happy because they are excellent quality and and uh, really good so I hope that that answers the mail on that um, the only th other thing I'll say is there there is precedent the British used a lot of Sten guns and it's not because they didn't have Enfield rifles but the airborne used a lot of Sten guns even up to even up through the Suez crisis in the 50s and the Soviets didn't really do a lot of dropping but you know they they armed almost entire battalions with PPSH submachine guns so there's something there there's something there and the submachine gun de-emphasized once the intermediate cartridge rifle came out so you know it it, it was a precursor of the more modern rifles we know less powerful cartridge higher firepower um, as vis-a-vis -vis larger capacity magazines so that's what that draws out okay the next question is which is faster and has a greater rate of fire the martini henry or the remington rolling block in post-civil war military rifles that were specifically designed for metallic cartridges i've never i've never actually fired them head-to-head -head, my inclination would be the martini henry would be faster because you just cock the lever the round automatically ejects you just put another round in close it and it automatically cocks and fires whereas with the rolling block you do have to manipulate the hammer a little bit and when you open the uh when you open the the block um usually the the cartridge does not completely come out you might have to whip it away with your hand so I think the Martini Henry's probably faster but at some point maybe up during the summer I'll I'll actually check it out see which one does 10 rounds quicker my but my gut tells me it's gonna be the Martini okay I want an optic on my AR the rifles purpose is to engage targets over 200 yards 200 yards away I'm sorry any recommendation well first of all the scope market is so broad and and there's so many things on there that I can't I can only make some very general observations number one if this is a SHTF type rifle make sure you understand the legal ramifications of engaging a threat target at that distance because maybe after it's all over with people are being held accountable but beyond that 
you want to hit targets 200 yards and longer I would go with um, any uh, first of all stay away from um, civilian hunting style scopes that you see like in Walmart or at, at Academy and some of the other other places that are specifically designed for hunting rifles stay away from those go with the tactical type of um, of optics and those are everywhere and um, I would check with three gun competitors who may be using a rifle and and part of it is they engage out to you know two or three hundred yards uh, and and just get recommendations understanding that whatever you buy in a year is not going to be the new hotness so you know there you go and buy the best quality you can I bought years ago. Um, I bought an L can for an FNFAL. Man, is that a beautiful optic! And I did purchase a uh, an ACOG for uh, my AR15A2. And man, are those things great! So, you know, but I realize they're they're kind of old hat now. Everybody goes LPVOs and other things. So uh, whatever you feel comfortable with. To me, the more important thing is what reticle do you want and what reticle is best for a target out there. Some of the, some reticles don't, aren't fine enough in my opinion. So um, that, is a, that is a big thing. And stay away from the, you know, the horrible, there, are, there is some horrible stuff out there, usually made in China. I'd kind of stay away from that. So that's all I can really... Uh, recommend on that next question should I avoid carry handle ARs even though I liked the M16A1 when I was in the service um, by avoid I mean go with a number one you can get a flat top and put a carry handle on it and be totally happy um, I mount an ACOG on my AR15A2 which is like the early 90s what they were doing in the service in the early 90s and it works great you know so many guys so many guys come up man that's mounted too high and I go why do you think that and well it's just mounted too high it's mounted on the carry handle but then when you actually get into the prone position and shoot it you find that it's just right and then I point out to them well it's just right and I said how many people have to put risers on their <laughs> flat top AR to get the optic up to where they can see it in the prone position or another position and then the light bulb kind of goes on where they say well maybe it isn't that bad what it what it does not do well is positioning it forward or back or using you know the the three power um, magnifiers which were the hotness you know 10 years ago or whatever so it does not do that. But if you have a, an optic um, and it mounts like the ACOG is actually designed to mount in the carry handle, oh man, that's 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 sweet. It's a nice it's a nice package, it really is. So I would not avoid them if you like them. Um, the thing to do is um, get a hold of some friends and maybe shoot their ARs and see if the flat top affords you, you you might shoot that and say yeah I really want as much as I like those the carry handles I think this is the way to go um, you might do that or you might sit there and say you know 
for nostalgia and other reasons I really and familiarity I really prefer the carry handle and if you're going to use iron sights there's nothing wrong with the carry handle AR as a matter of fact they're they're excellent for that especially the A1s because they once you adjust it it just they don't move so um, you know that's a the retro AR is a lot more practical than people would like to admit I think on some some level so I would not avoid them but I would make a considered choice so that you're sure it's what you really want uh, next question I like the M1 Garand system the M1 the M14 is the mini 14 or mini 30 good choices for me um, if you already have an M1 rifle, um, I can see the logic in having it. I have a Mini 14 I shoot occasionally. Um, I actually, uh, I'll tell the story. I actually, when the uh, uh, one of the assault weapon bans was coming around, I don't think it was 94, I think it was earlier than that. Um, it was a state ban. Well, you know, I, I had some. I had inherited some high-end air rifles, high-end at that time, and I went and I traded those straight across for a Mini 14, and that turned out to be a really good, a really good uh, trade. Uh, it had some sort of cheesy B-square deal with a little scope on it, and that actually, you know, after shooting that for a little while, that all that all disintegrated, and I wound up putting the iron sight the rear iron sight back on so it's a really good it's a really good little rifle I mean it's a it's an outstanding piece of equipment it is not to the military grade that you know a lot of people demand um, you know it's a civilian rifle that takes you know standard capacity magazines and it does a really good job of that and now Ruger makes good at good magazines for it, so it's really good at that. Uh, the only negative thing I've ever heard was during the Rodney King riots. I knew a couple of um, highway patrolmen, and for some reason, the California Highway Patrol issued as patrol rifles uh, Ruger Mini 14s. They did not like that. <clears throat> they didn't like the appearance. They didn't think it looked menacing enough. Uh, one guy said that he he hooked his trigger guard on something and. You know, because it disassembles the same way a Garand does, so he actually flipped his guard off and his, you know, his uh, stock and his barreled receiver started separating. So he didn't really like that. But I like them. I like the Mini 14 probably a little better than the Mini 30. I have heard that Mini 30s, they, they used to be notorious for problems that they would not... Um, detonate the primers on surplus 762 by 39 ammo so you know that kind of gave them a bad rap I don't know whether they fixed that or not I imagine they have because I haven't heard it in years so I'd imagine that it's uh, that's pretty much been cured and we're not getting any Russian ammunition for probably the rest of my lifetime anyway so um, you know if you find any surplus out there it's who knows where it's coming from somewhere who knows and here's the uh, last question 
Did you hear that Alec Baldwin has been indicted on involuntary manslaughter for the shooting on the Rust set in, uh, what was it, 2021, I guess? All I can say is it's about time. Um, there was a there was a lengthy discussion on uh, a radio local radio show and it's surprising how ignorant people are um, but they want to opine on on everything here's my um, here's my viewpoint and I'm coming from you coming to you from the position of at one time I was actually in a an informal discussion to become a weapons consultant to Hollywood Productions. Now they never I never got an offer cuz I cut it off too soon because you know, let me let me just phrase this. Um I remember being in college and some of the people in the theater department were egotistical asses and I can only imagine that the that that gets exponentially worse when you're talking about people who are actually making a living and dealing with people like Alec Baldwin I can imagine dealing with that those types of personalities is not my forte um, I'm a pretty I'm pretty mellow guy and I'm pretty kind of a people person but I have limits and uh, the little inner Arlie Ermy <laughs> would come out and so I wouldn't want to launch into a full metal jacket screaming session uh, on one of these guys um, so anyway I, I turned it off so I can tell you though that what they did not understand in um, in this radio show I was listening to when you're when you're on a Hollywood set what you can never have is live ammunition you can never have it never ever ever under any circumstance cannot the rounds you do have are dummy rounds which have a projectile but have no primer and no propellant and those are things that you kind of carry in a gun belt or on a bandolier or if you're shooting revolvers you know you if because everyone is a stickler for um, for authenticity, uh, when you look at the front of a revolver when it's pointed at the camera, you can tell the chambers are empty usually because there's light kind of comes in from behind it. So in order to mitigate that, you use dummy rounds inside the chambers of a revolver so it looks like it's loaded okay looks like it's loaded you can see the ammunition I don't recommend you do this at home do not do this but if you look at but the front of a loaded revolver you can see the front of the loaded cartridges at, when you look at the front of the cylinder do not do not do this take my word for it if you actually have to do it to point it at a mirror and then you can see what I'm talking about but dummy cartridges have that use. They simulate a loaded cartridge for appearance purposes. Okay. The next thing is you have a blank cartridge. 
which has a primer, some charge of propellant, and usually some sort of wadding or something to keep the to keep the charge in there. And it can be it could even be wax. It could be all kinds of things. Uh, a little bit, but but really, it's the kind of thing that you don't really point them at other people in fire because something does come out the end of the barrel um, whatever holds that powder charge in there so you have those um, obviously live rounds which should never ever ever be there um, have a projectile propellant and a primer so if you take that out of the equation out of the equation the only kind of ammunition you should have there are dummy rounds and blanks and there have been tragedies with these there have been horrible tragedies um, Brandon Lee was killed he was the actor son of Bruce Lee he was killed it's almost 30 years ago now um, a revolver had had a dummy round and in the dummy round the projectile came loose and it kind of lodged in the forcing get got far enough down the forcing cone of the barrel so that when they unloaded it they didn't really pay attention that one of these bullets didn't come out then they have then they loaded blanks in behind it and the blanks had enough force so when they fired the gun at him they fired a blank the blank had enough force that it pushed the projectile which was already in the barrel it pushed it out it effectively became a live round because the uh, projectile soared out of the end of the barrel hit Brandon Lee and I think he died like a day later you know so you can't have accident you have to be extremely detail-oriented and very very careful um, there was a guy back in the 70s named John Eric Hexum I believe and it was I, I don't even know what the TV show was he was on a TV show he had a revolver loaded with blanks and in between filming scenes he thought he would create a joke so he pointed the blank at his own head and pulled the trigger thinking hey this will just be a joke this thing just makes a little pop um, unfortunately it, it, the force of a blank was such that it dislodged a piece of his skull and drove it through his brain and killed him so there's very very real um, considerations to take place when you have a firearm on a set and they say well why can't we just AI generate it have people fake the recoil that that always looks horrible uh, I could point out examples where they've tried to fake recoil and it and it looks terrible there's also a, a lot of exotic guns like Gatling guns and all sorts of other things that have to be that fire and and face it the movie going public are sticklers for authenticity if it looks phony everybody's gonna call it out so they use in a lot of things they'll use actual guns firing modified to fire the blanks and they will actually use the dummy rounds around these things
and uh, it's 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 like anything else around firearms it can be very dangerous will they convict Baldwin I think what he's going to say because he already said I didn't pull the trigger I didn't do all that well they turn turns out that's all nonsense they know he, they they examined the gun they know that's all nonsense he's gonna say I don't remember pulling the trigger but his defense will be I was told this was a cold gun there was nothing there was nothing in it should have only had dummy rounds in it and even if I checked I'm not sure I would have known the difference between a dummy round and a live round now he probably does but I'm not sure that that um, you know that I'm sure that's what his defense will be and I think he'll get acquitted and that's gonna be that so yes I have heard of it and yes I do think that you know it's this comedy of errors at least somebody's being held accountable this woman's dead and all everybody on that set has done is point fingers at each other well the armor should have known well the armor was kept off the set because of COVID restrictions you know it's this comedy of errors the, the real question which nobody answered and nobody has an answer for is how did live rounds get on a movie set when they never should have and the theories are well in, in between uh, in between the production days and things people were bored and they'd go out into the desert and shoot I mean I you know stupid is as stupid does so anyway um, on that note that is the end of the podcast again this has been episode number 188 old school guns any questions or comments kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or the comments section on podbean but anyway until next time this is old school guns out